0: welcome back. So in this podcast, I'm going to do a kind of journal club wherein I examine this queerly named paper and subsequent webinar about it. I'm picking on it because it's one of the more obvious examples of how queer theory and the critical social justice ideology has been infiltrating counter-trafficking work as it has in pretty much every other sector of our lives. For obvious reasons, I'm particularly interested in the anti-trafficking sector, but I'm sure you'll be able to see and identify and apply some of these ideas to other areas. So the article I'm discussing is Queering the Support for Trafficked Persons, authored by Corinne Schwartz and Hannah Britton. Later on, I'll be discussing a webinar which featured this article and one of the authors. But first, what is queer theory? Why is this a thing? And what does it have to do with counter-trafficking work? Why am I doing a podcast about this? Why I happen to think it's pretty important. And so, according to the website New Discourses, queer theory is one of the major branches of thought within the theory of critical social justice, one that is particularly interested in, though not limited to, issues of sex, gender, and sexuality. The book, Cynical Theories by James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose puts it this way. Queer theory presumes that oppression follows from categorization, which arises every time language constructs a sense of what is, quote, normal by producing and maintaining rigid categories, uh, such as sex, gender, or whatever, even if these categories seem straightforward and common sense. And queer refers to anything that falls outside of binaries— It began as a way to challenge sex and gender binaries, but has expanded to pretty much everything, including counter-trafficking work. Back to uh, new discourses. So they write, Queer theory exists, in a nutshell, to antagonize norms, normativity, and the normal. That is, anything that can be considered normal by society, even an accurate, neutral description. And thus, that carries or can be construed to imply a morally normative expectation about it, which it deems intrinsically oppressive. This attitude is probably most clearly understood in the binary dichotomy normal versus abnormal, noting that there is a relatively positive connotation to normal as compared to a relatively negative connotation to abnormal. Considering ways that society tends to expect one's behavior to be within certain bounds of normalcy, and everything falling outside of that is quote abnormal, perverted, or crazy may clarify this understanding. So queer theory seems to be deliberately to confuse anything that is descriptively normal in the sense of being commonplace, for example, heterosexuality or the sexual binary with that automatically carrying an implication that any variation from the sense of falling within the general norm must be understood pejoratively and seen as somehow illegitimate. It views society as carrying strong expectations, if not requirements, for people to fall within the, quote, normal range and not to be, quote, abnormal in any way, and sees these expectations as a central application of dominance to create oppression. So back to the book, I quote, When scholars speak of queering something, they mean they intend to remove it from the categories within which we understand it now and look at it in new and counterintuitive ways. So here, I'll pick apart some of the language to help you understand the insidiousness of this discourse. Why it might not sound so bad on the surface, but the underlying premise of queer theory is ultimately destructive to counter-trafficking work. So, going, uh, moving on to article, the discussion of the article. So, as an overview, this article certainly does live up to the ideals of queer theory because it is disorganized, incoherent, and obfuscating. It is presented more as a commentary than a piece of research. But the article reports on a 12-month study of public health surveillance in one city in which the researchers interviewed service providers about risk and protective factors and facilitated organizational self-assessments of services. Although this is a qualitative study by which I do not expect a numbers-laden report, there are actually no basic data on the interviewees, except to note that out of 70 organizations that were identified as providing services in the area to vulnerable people, only 36 interviews were conducted. The authors do not explicitly explain inclusion criteria. No other data regarding the organizations or the interviewees is provided. So one of the stated reasons why they chose Kansas City as the site of, of the um, of this study is that it is often overlooked in U.S. trafficking research, which focuses on the U.S. coasts, border states, and larger major urban centers. But no data is is, uh, cited to back up the claim. I suspect it is simply because it's geographically easier to do a study in a place near where you live. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. So now I'm going through the article and alternating quote, quotations from the article and my commentary. So one of the stated objectives is that we are, quote, interested in understanding the cycles of vulnerability individuals face, as well as the ways services could be adapted to fit the unpredictable nonlinear needs of survivors. Great, I'm on board, let's go. However, From the beginning, the authors take a trope of what considers, quote, normal counter-trafficking work, survivor assistance, and the, quote, ideal trafficking victim. Then they make the assumptions and build upon that trope and sets it up as the thing that is the system and uses that trope model to then propose destabilization and deconstruction of the system when that was not really the system to begin with. And so this seems to be a common tactic of the woke. They write, In order to support someone exiting trafficking, it is crucial to challenge the latent notions of an ideal or model victim. In particular, the ostensibly straight young woman who must be rescued by male law enforcement through the prosecution process serves as a foil to the numerous queer bodies. So that is a preposterous assumption of, of the ideal victim. And if anyone has done any kind of work in the anti-trafficking sector, then one knows that there is no ideal victim except in perhaps movies with Liam Neeson. So I quote again, Instead, social service, social service providers and anti-trafficking advocates utilize a client-first approach, which recognizes that survivors move in and out of risk and security and that there is no single package of mechanisms for each survivor. This is not a newsflash. Hello, yes, that's true. We know this. In the space of a couple paragraphs, uh, the article moves from taking a client-centered approach to claiming that democracy is the name of their exclusion. So I'm not sure how they get there, but that's just what they write in the article. You know, I don't disagree that the human trafficking movement as a whole needs to move from a police and prosecution-based approach to a public health approach and move upstream for more prevention, but the ideas put forth here are not necessarily reflective of that. The article keeps talking about non-linear and non-normative. Again, if you go back to the definition of queer theory that I talked about before, you know that that is queer theory, but nonlinear and non-normative is also pretty much the definition of any survivor of chronic trauma. You know, the saying goes, if you've met one trauma survivor, you've met one trauma survivor. So the the study goes on. The heteronormative life leaves little room for deviation or agency. These are graduation, marriage, parenthood, purchase of homes, etc. But to be queer is to see this differently. So basically what they're saying, if you don't want to be bored and stuck in this regular boring life, or if your life isn't going according to the normal life plan, according to Life Magazine or Good Housekeeping in the 1950s, then you must be queer. I mean, like, there's not one way to do life. And so that goes back to, This is normal and everything outside is abnormal and abnormal. We need to meet abnormal good and we need that needs to be queer. So there it is. Uh, With its emphasis on blurring binaries and disrupting normative boundaries, queer theory can radically disrupt how we understand and use the institutions that structure our lives. So there it is. Postmodernism, disrupt institution, the oppressive structures. So... You know, I'm not really sure what else survivors would want eventually. We have to talk to them. You know, sure, survivors take all kinds of dips and turns and moving backwards and forwards, but that's the underlying point that they, the woke, want to make it so it isn't the goal at all and completely redefined successful, even though we still have to eat and we need clothing and have adequate housing and other luxuries like per- perhaps put gas in the car. You know, they want to completely redefine successful, but they haven't exactly defined success either, except to say that it doesn't have to look like the Cleaver family. So, you know, major interruptions in time and progress in life stages for trafficking survivors is not queer. It's normal. It's normal for people with these life experiences. It's not queering for programs to adjust their timing and for survivors to adjust expectations because they will experience a few more challenges than people who haven't faced those traumatic elements. The article continues. Yet, these practices are presented as the only options for social legibility. According to whom? I suppose the government? You know, but not, you know, usually a program that has more than a minute of experience or an ounce of compassion will not completely erase the lives because there is no normal life for a trafficking survivor. So the article goes on. I quote, the choice to operate as a subject outside of social norms for whatever reason, deliberately, accidentally, or of necessity, does not lead to erasure. They quote uh, philosopher Halberstam. Rather, non-normative subjects, in our case, youth trans star individuals undocumented persons they coexist on a continuum that recognizes the agency present in their disruption of their lives their physical security and their opportunities you know yes however people do make choices and they have to live with those consequences i mean there's there's trafficking yeah that's what's been done to you but in the recovery process we still have to lead people to make agency and to make these choices. You know, of course, I'm speaking here from a rational, liberal, and even utilitarian point of view. You know, services are offered, but services themselves do not do any good if people continue to reject them. We can continue to offer, but there's no such thing as a contract of minimal expectations. We do not enable or facilitate destructive behavior. A survivor wants to reject help to get sober. We respect that and do not force them. We do not rescue them into sobriety. We can offer needle exchange and help them with food and even housing if that helps them get their feet up on the ground. But what we don't do is just say, this is their nonlinear path to success and give them the drugs they are seeking because their lived experience says they are happier and better off that way. No. So quoting uh, again, while the social service sector is is a very specific institution. It is imprinted with the same normative concepts of time and place. That structure is how we move about in the world. Remember non-linear. So the article quotes Halberstam. In Western cultures, we chart the emergence of the adult from the dangerous and unruly period of adolescence as a desired process of maturation. And we create longevity, longevity as the most desirable future. We applaud the pursuit of long life under any circumstances and pathologize modes of living that show little or no concern for longevity." Yeah, I mean, if you're a social service provider wanting to help traffic people, you really don't want them to die early in those dire circumstances. You know, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I'm planning on living as long as I can, and I don't think that most people exactly plan an early demise for themselves either. But if one has such a dismal and dystopian view of the world, then I suppose that would make sense, you know, to say that. But then why put all the energy into dismantling and disrupting oppressive societal structures, or even helping survivors? So, survivors who do not normatively shift from instability to stability are rendered illegible within its framework because they do not fit the model of the ideal victim and are inappropriately deemed culpable in their own exploitation. Note, again, this article loops back to the point where they, you know, erected this model victim and then if they're not behaving, then, you know, the anti-trafficking organizations are just gonna read them out and not help. At this point, the article makes the point where they claim that the carceral structure of counter-trafficking is the problem, but they make no coherent segue or link to public health or that time and material success are oppressive structures. They just say, yeah, uh, it's a problem. And then they link this specifically to the LGBTQ plus people without demonstrating in the paper that they are having a disproportionately difficult experience with social services in Kansas City only that has been implied from a couple of other broader studies. So this paper, they're just making generalizations and claims without really backing it up. Not that I'm saying that it's not true, but if you're going to write it in a research paper, then you need to back that up with some data or studies. So, and then they make this strange diversion to the concept of forging community with the figure of, quote, the stranger. Uh, which I don't understand is like the stranger of my neighbor is my neighbor. I don't understand. So I'm not even going to try to explain something I don't understand, but see this as very little relevance, relevance to this concept in this study that was supposedly done, but no method of, you know, we're on page six and there's no mention of methodology or anything. But of course, as I mentioned, this is consistent with queer theory because it really isn't normal. So I quote back to the paper, For example, youth who are trying to exit sex trafficking may feel it necessary to continue to be trafficked while they are getting the funds and resources to secure housing or a safe place to live. Because of inadequate housing options, they may feel it necessary to gather enough resources to survive before they seek more sustainable assistance. You know, I think this is true, you know, if there is isn't adequate support from an assistance program. But I don't agree that we should consider it okay that youth have to stay in a trafficked situation by choice for any hour longer than necessary because it is traumatizing and dangerous. You know, to suggest that saying staying trafficked for longer is merely the queer, non-normative way that people choose to manage their lives is callous. You know, now if someone is in a non-trafficked prostitution situation that I, I meet people every week you know, I have seen that, you know, I agree that change and exiting prostitution can be hard and that service providers need to be patient continuing to offer, offer to help. But the patient, but the authors wrote trafficked and that is un- unacceptable, especially for youth. And then they accuse abolitionists of conflating prostitution and trafficking. Now, then they write, as survivors shift how they view their lives and experiences as it is their agency to do, they can see themselves as participants and agents in their rehabilitation and survivor, survival. Again, nothing wrong with that. and should be the goal always to give survivors agency and decision-making power. So now we're on page 7. Finally, they're getting to discussing the study site, which is Kansas City. And something to the purpose of the paper. So I quote, leaders, advocates, and government officials in Kansas City are increasingly aware of the high levels of human trafficking, both labor and sex trafficking, in the region. Again, no data, no reference, and they give a reason for this in the footnotes, and they cite, proxy data is used because quantifying is very difficult. Yeah, no shock, Sherlock. And the estimates given say that in 2013, Missouri was ranked as 19th and Kansas ranked as 23rd out of 50 states. Okay, you know, that's kind of middle of the pack there. You know, just a side note, this study was published in 2015, so 2013 wasn't, you know, is a a valid um, year to to reflect on. But, you know, like I said, it's uh, growing, yeah, maybe middle of the pack, but never mind. Then they restate the goal of this study. It is to provide a queerer approach to survivor services, one that transforms the social services sector from an institutional institution reliant upon a linear approach to one that honors survivor agency on a less direct path. You know, you know, I know I've been working in this sector for a long time. Programs are usually as flexible as they can be. And admittedly, Many more can be more flexible, but now when they are flexible and give agency to survivors, the authors want to retrofit them with the label queer. Now they're getting into some interviewee uh, anecdotes and quotations. And so one has said, it's up to the survivor to decide if they want to work with us or not, but they do get referred to us and we do follow up with them. And then they make the decision about whether they want to work with us. So that's what I mentioned before. It's agency. You decide to work with them or not. It's their decision. Um, uh, going on, quote, The staffers are not experts dispensing a regimen regimented program of rehabilitation. The lived experience of the survivors propel the program. So a good survivor, quote, good, might go through all legal channels and all programs offered. You know, I don't understand where they get this crap about a good survivor. Again, you know, there are good and then bad survivors, and then the so-called good survivors are the ones that are jumping all through the hoops right on time. I've never heard of that. There's no such thing, as I said before. Again, this is the false trope of an argument of the ideal and good victim. I quote again, A survivor-centered approach queers this narrative, disrupting how individuals navigate the sometimes overwhelming variety of services they can access upon entering the social service sector. No, you do not get to claim this for queer theory. The whole notion is trauma-informed, survivor-centered care, and it is not queer. It's compassionate. The paper goes on to highlight a couple of other anecdotes from service providers who actually get it and are not claiming queer theories for their inspiration I go on. Survivors from marginalized positions become disproportionately affected by this reduction in services, increasing the violence they might experience and decreasing their ability to advocate for themselves. You know, I think pretty much everyone who's been a victim of human trafficking is marginalized. You know, I'm not sure who would not be. I mean, their lives are racked. You know, a lot of them, it's terrible. You know, so now they go on to, the authors go on to uh, organization um, in collaboration and building coalitions are a good idea, but that funding limitations create competition. You know, I think it's because NGOs tend to have a scarcity mindset and play the zero sum game, which is not healthy and does not move the move, movement forward in general. But, you know, the, I quote, the article says there's a lack of equitable funding that limits how these groups operate. Arguably, social inclusion is the ultimate goal of all social service providers working with vulnerable, exploited, or trafficked persons, whether it be through traditional or queered approaches. Again, I have no idea what they're talking about because they haven't described or defined the traditional approach, only to assume that it intends to burden survivors with unrealistic expectations. The authors go on to address structural inequalities, all the isms, and quotes an interviewee And she mentions racism and classism. And then the authors expand the list of oppressions to include the anti-LGBT plus and others to make the point that all of these are contributing to the problem. The problem here is that the authors make a claim without backing it up in their data, at least the data that they present, which is basically none. Like I said, I mean, that might be true, but they're not citing articles or backing it up. And then here it comes. However... Structural inequalities are also deeply embedded in our society. We usually learn at a very young age what it means to be normal, socially legible, and worthy of attention. So, we are all inherently racist, implication. Here is what they suggest If social service organizations want to tackle these issues, they must start the process when community members are not yet completely indoctrinated into these ideologies. After they just got through discussing the funding situation and that there isn't enough to go around and how these staff aren't experts and they're just meeting people where they are on the intersectional granular level, and now they have to also move upstream on prevention? You know, Do we need to work upstream and address vulnerabilities that start in childhood, such as adverse childhood experiences, education, housing security, and other things? Yes. 100% absolutely. Is prevention effective and efficient? Yes. Do we need to explore and evaluate prevention programs for their effectiveness? Absolutely. Is it necessarily the role of these particular social service agencies to do it? Not necessarily. Some may be able to, others can't. It's a matter of scope and scale and mission. You know, the authors then throw some threads together that might make sense, and they haven't proved it in the text or the data of the article, but You know, in the end, they can't resist making reference to Judith Butler, the queen of queer theory, to add, uh, you know, to add to the sugar on top for the case for oppression. So I quote, queer theory can expand the concept of survivor possibility, resisting the foreclosure from possibility that comes from the inability to recognize certain subjects of human. So if you're not queer, then you treat beneficiaries as inhuman I quote, by disrupting linear therapeutic approaches that constrain how subjects comfortably navigate institutional frameworks, queer theory expands which subjects are allowed to exercise their agency and which survivor-driven actions are considered valuable and valid to create viable lives. Again, okay, I said it was going to be confusing and obfuscating, but basically, you know, we're saying what most of my colleagues believe that you know it's compassionate trauma informed survivor led ser- services and interventions that have been going on for decades queer theory did not invent this again they just set up a trope a straw man of the ideal victim and linear oriented organization and then punch holes through them sure there's some organizations that do treat their beneficiaries that way or not ideal but you know they're not they're not usually held up as models for how to do things in this sector so in the conclusion of the article, basically there is no conclusion. <laughs> no steps are forward are offered. No summary of the absent data that they didn't collect. It's only be queer. That's the right way to move forward. So, you know, although this article was published in 2015, I didn't learn of it until earlier this year or late last year when I watched a, a journal club webinar that was featuring this paper and one of the authors. And so by then I was aware of critical social justice and theory, and I wanted to see how the woke was operating in the counter-trafficking sector, because, you know, I'm kind of partial to saying, to seeing what's going on and, uh, protecting my sector from this ideology. And so I was not disappointed. This is textbook for a woke Academy, and I, I will link the webinar and everything below, but, you know, just talking about the webinar. So it intended to be a journal club, but it wasn't really like any other journal club discussion in which I've participated. It wasn't really about the paper. It was just more about how we need to embrace queer theory and, you know, just talking about theory. So classically, uh, the author, this was Corinne Schwartz, she spent some time self-flagellating herself about what she would do differently with the study, only providing no particulars, where she defined what was wrong, and how specifically she would change it. The apologies and self-flagellation is kind of woke repentance for what one does, and you have to continue to, quote, do the work, as if to CYA cover your ass herself for not doing things properly, but that she's apologizing for not having the appropriate knowledges. So she discusses the origin story of queer theory in this paper. We need feminist and queer theory to understand a research question and that they are intentionally political to eradicate trafficking through addressing larger issues of social justice. And they also need to provide gut checks and thinking critically about counter-trafficking work to end systemic oppression and injustice. So here we are about 18 minutes into the webinar, and why queer theory? Again, talking about why queer theory, because queer theory adds to time and context, not just in terms of sexuality, but in terms of resisting and orientation towards normativity. She states that queer time and place focuses a lot on resisting linearity of a standard life course, because service provision is rote and prescriptive. You know, I've already discussed that in the article before, how uh, oh, that's uh, rubbish. Um, so then, in the webinar, she mentioned she's constantly striving to reflect and check herself. So religious, you know. And then she brings up all the isms of scholarship talks and collective liberation and bringing margins to the center of the work. Um, so then she talks about why the paper interviewed service providers as opposed to survivors. And she said that systems level questions may not be appropriate for survivors and used a bunch of confusing and obfuscating language that kind of sounded like the survivors wouldn't get it because we might damage their sensibilities. So I'm not really sure. And then there was no, uh, you know, discussion of the demography or the inclusion or exclusion of who they interviewed or which organizations they included, um, You know, because, you know, there was no validating the claims of service providers because perceptions of identities, lived experiences, and storytelling are more important in order to resist one-size-fits-all narrative about trafficking. Not really concerned with veracity of quantity, you know, but it's more about, you know, how you talk to the people. And 25 minutes into the talk, she goes into the Trans Feminist Manifesto Anthology, stating again that she wished to rectify things that she would have done differently, uh, not to mention her typos. None of her regrets have to do with the paper itself, but more like, oh, she would soften the language. And she talks about using a critical trafficking studies lens. You know, how does our language or concept support stereotypical problematic story of trafficking and her paper, she admits, runs the risk of supporting a narrow view of trafficking in persons. And she is aghast and ashamed that this could be possible and she might get cancelled. She states that she is continuing to be aware of her perceptions and is haunting her still. Lord have mercy, there's no forgiveness in the woke religion. Towards the end of the talk, she ends up talking about her own research trajectory and her haha moment, and then there's some Q&A, really... The only valuable question that I, in my opinion, that made sense in terms of what that made sense in terms of this paper was the author was asked about the lack of demographics or other data about the people she interviewed, you know, it was intentional to protect the people as they could identify, be identified in such a small area, and it would be too political, even though at the beginning, she states that it is political. Um, so Anyway, in conclusion of all this from the article and the webinar is all I can say is that I'll have nothing to do with studying trafficking through a critical lens. And I hope that there are others who will resist this as well. You know, we can't resist what we don't know or recognize. As I've pointed out, queer theory and other theories and isms can seem quite good and helpful. But these intentions do not get us to the status quo stated goals. They just keep us turning around and mulling over language. The intention is always to disconstruct, disrupt, deconstruct, disrupt, and dismantle. It's about power, not about compassion or equality. You know, a lot of people don't really see what's behind this because, you know, on the outset, yeah, you know, it's fine. We want to be inclusive and, you know, it's queer and, you know, these, yeah, we've been discriminating, you know, but the, the insidious and dangerous dangerous ideology is really destructive and not constructive. So my purpose here is to help people unfamiliar with critical social justice or queer theory understand the basic tenets and how it intersects with the counter-trafficking sector. You know, I'm sure hopefully you've learned something and you'll start to recognize it and be more equipped to resist it, recognize it, call it out. Thanks for listening, everyone. It really, I really got hyped up about this, and it's it's absolutely fascinating. Uh, the uh, as I mentioned before, the links to everything I've mentioned will be in the show notes. But if you'd like to learn more about where I'm getting my information and and how to uh, how to stand up to uh, social justice and the woke, please be in touch with me. All the links and contacts are the, down there below. So. I hope you have a great day. I hope to see you on my next live webinar. And uh, why don't you go out and get some sun, make some vitamin D. And uh, we'll see you around again when the doctor is in.